Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The Me Too movement brought new faces to Congress, and while the number of women in office has grown across the nation, the fight for equal rights for women, like equal pay, remains. Coming up, we talk with Kate Farrar, Executive Director of the Connecticut Women's Education and Legal Fund, about efforts to expand equal opportunities for women and girls in our state. First, next year marks a big anniversary in our nation's history. It was August 1920, when 36 states ratified the 19th Amendment, which granted women the right to vote. Today, where we live, we learn about the suffrage movement in Connecticut. Now, what suffragists did you learn about in school? You can join our conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Later, we're going to talk about the lesser-known women, including women of color, who fought for equal rights, including the right to vote, right here in Connecticut. Joining me now in studio, I wanted to welcome our uh, first two guests. Uh, Karen Lye Miller is here. She's a researcher with the Connecticut Historical Society. Karen, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for inviting us. Also here, Brittany Yancey, who's Assistant Professor of Humanities at Goodwin College. Uh, Brittany, thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. I'll start with you, Karen. Uh, I mentioned the 19th Amendment, and some people might be uh, uh, scrambling to remember uh, what the 19th Amendment uh, uh, was. Uh, I'll read what it says. It says, the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. And so when we think about this right to vote, especially women uh, gaining the right to vote, when we think about suffrage, uh, who are the first people that come to mind in this fight for uh, the vote? I think it might help to begin even uh, not based in the United States, but in England. Uh, in 1840, there was the first like world's anti-slavery convention uh, so it was attended by um, Americans, including Lucretia Mott, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and uh, William Lloyd Garrison, except at this convention, they realized that women would not be allowed to speak. So these women had traveled overseas and were hoping to you know, make their voice and their concerns known, and yet they were um, you know, relegated to the you know, viewer's gallery, silenced. And from that, that spurred on the Women's Rights Convention. Women like Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Lucretia Mott, and others felt like they had to somehow fight for their right to speak in public and to have political agency. So in 1848, they uh, convened at the Women's Rights Convention of uh, the Seneca Falls, mm. which we remember from, from school. Right. So uh, back up a little before we get to the Seneca Falls Convention. Uh, you'd mentioned uh, women having the right to speak. So society looked down upon women who tried to speak out uh, publicly. Can you talk more about the reaction of some of these early women uh, who uh, decided to mobilize? Being a lady meant not speaking in public. So even very well-known figures like Harriet Beecher Stowe did not speak in public. She would ask other men to speak and say things that she had written. So um, women who were speaking in public were seen as not ladies. 
And the women that uh, you mentioned, uh, they were considered uh, upper class? Yes. Well, I mean, if we look at the very practical um, aspects of being a suffragist, you have to have the money and the time uh, in order to be able to devote yourself to a cause. So Lucretia Mott, Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Elizabeth Cady Stanton was actually a bride, <laughs> and her honeymoon was going to the anti-slavery convention in London. So taking into consideration that aspect of how you need time and money, mm-hmm. uh, right? So definitely a select class of uh, ladies who were also trying to gain their voice and still maintain their femininity. Mm. Uh, Brittany Yancey, who's also here, assistant professor of humanities at Goodwin College. Again, we're talking about the suffrage movement, but before uh, women uh, mobilized to get the right to vote, they were just gathering because they wanted to be seen as equal to men. Uh, so talk a little bit about uh, what were some of the early um, issues that brought these women together. Yeah, I mean, I think Overall, you're talking about looking at access, right? Um, Looking, I mean, the early suffragists are looking at this as an opportunity for first-class citizenship, right? That they see themselves as part of the citizenry um, and feel that having access and the right to vote allows them to be part um, of society, Right. Um, One of the things that I think is really interesting that uh, Karen just mentioned is looking at this idea of ladyhood. Right. Mm -hmm. That is being debated um, in the earlier, uh, you know, early 19th century. Right. With this um, these kind of prescriptions of what it means to be a woman. Um, And this is where I think uh, the conversation about women of color becomes so critical, right? Um, Because as you stated, the term suffragist attached to that is this, um, these prescriptions about what it means to be a woman. So um, the earlier suffragists, right, are not speaking in public as we have defined that um, through a more popular understanding of what suffrage means. What's interesting about that is a woman who I focus on in my work, Mariah Stewart, right, um, predates 1848, um, about a decade. Um, she's born, actually, um, for Connecticut history. She's born here in Hartford, Connecticut um, in 1803. Mm-hmm. And um she goes through her own journey. She's orphaned early, and she ends up by 1826 moving to Boston, and she's married. Um, and in Boston, she becomes widowed. She goes through a very tumultuous um, court experience to get her inheritance, right? Um, and she's kind of swindled out of that, and she's left um, economically challenged. And that experience really politicizes her and hardens her to thinking about not only racial um, and thinking about the anti-slave movement and the um addressing the issue of slavery, but then also addressing the issue of women's independence, right, and what that looks like. And so by 1831, Mariah Stewart is actually speaking publicly. In fact, she is known um, as the nation's first woman to speak publicly about women's issues. And so the erasure of Mariah Stewart in this conversation about the history of suffrage in the United States, um, you know, it speaks to how African-American women in particular are invisible in this narrative. Um, And so it's important for us to kind of, as we think about the centennial and kind of reflecting on what suffrage means in the United States, that we make sure that we're able to elevate these women who were on the ground and challenging notions of womanhood in this Mm -hmm. moment. 
You can join our conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Again, as we look back at the suffrage movement in the United States, uh, 2020 uh, marking the centennial of when the 19th Amendment was ratified. Uh, we're going to be talking more about uh, some of the events that led up uh, to uh, that uh, 36 states gathering again to, to or to agree to ratify the 19th Amendment. But I wanted to learn a little bit more about Mariah uh, Brittany Yancey, who's here with us, Assistant Professor of Humanities at Goodwin College. Uh, she was erased, uh, as you mentioned. So how did you go about finding out about her? Well, I have to be honest. I'm finishing up my doctorate at the University of Connecticut, and um, it wasn't really until I, I took a class with Dr. Evelyn Simeon on Black feminist politics. And it is in this class that we are reading um, and we're hearing about this woman, Mariah Stewart, who would be considered really this kind of intellectual um, and this kind of public figure in America at a time where women, and particularly black women, are not even thought of, right, as being these kind of political kind of agents in this moment. And I mean, the whole story uh, was so inspiring and learning about her. Um, I have carried her narrative all the way into my own work. She actually starts off my dissertation. Um, and speaks about, you know, she goes through um, this um, this experience with her husband, but she's also kind of having this own kind of conscious raising moment within herself where she is influenced, right, by other black radicals who are on the ground in this moment, David Walker and others, and the tone that is happening about looking at black humanity in this moment and what do African-Americans need and what do African-American women need? And she sees herself as someone who can be that voice. And so to think about in 1831, she starts working with Garrison and others. She's writing for the Liberator. She's starting to have these speeches that she's going through New England um, and, and, and giving. I mean, it is an incredible story, right? And all of this is happening prior to 1848, prior to Sojourner Truth, prior to Frederick Douglass, right? And we and we don't hear about her. And so for sure, um, knowing her and her full career, I mean, she, you know, dies in 1876. And, you know, she has a full career of not only being an orator, but she's a writer. Um, she's a, um, a, you know, just this public, fi uh, um, public figure, right, that is speaking unapologetically on behalf of Black women and girls in America. Uh, Karen Lye Miller is also with us, researcher with the Connecticut Historical Society. Uh, Brittany just mentioned uh, Frederick Douglass and Sojourner Truth, uh, again, a uh, well-known abolitionist. And so I'm wondering if you could talk about how the suffrage movement uh, was up against uh, the abolitionist movement as well, and how did, when uh, they gathered in Seneca Falls in 1848, um, how did they reconcile those two issues? Uh, because some of the women that were early suffragists were also right. abolitionists. Right. Well, as we can see from the 1840s uh, London Convention, race and uh, advocacy for uh, race rights and women's rights are intertwined from the very, very beginning. So I think we see these, this tension between those suffragists and we have people who are advocating for uh, women's suffrage uh, who are both male and female. So we see people who are pro-women suffrage, other people who are pro-African-American suffrage, 
and attention between, you know, does one take priority over the other? If we support uh, black suffrage first, will we gain women's suffrage next? There were other suffragists who demanded, no, we must uh, stay on the course and demand only women's suffrage and focus on getting that, whereas others felt like they could um, achieve one moment of freedom and then the next. Mm. Uh, Brittany, uh, where did Frederick uh, Douglass uh, fall in, uh, again, uh, should uh, black men get the right to vote before uh, women? Yeah, I mean, he, he was very, um, very committed to that. Um, and, it's, and, and it's interesting. I mean, he actually, we, we understand that the Seneca Falls Convention is this two-day convention. And Frederick Douglass, and like you stated, Karen, they come on the second day, Right. Now, black women and women of color aren't invited to Seneca Falls, but the men are. And they can't, They do have this dual movement that they are, you know, working together on that carry them into um, post-Civil War era, right? The Emancipation Era, right? Um, this, this, this idea. However, Frederick Douglass becomes very clear that... Um, for him, slavery is not over until the black man has the right to vote, right? He's very clear about that. And so his priority becomes black male suffrage. And this is where you start to see that alliance that um, is, is happening, right, during the anti-slave era, right, um, start to kind of split um, where the question is, you know, is it black men? black suffrage or is it women's suffrage, you know, or can we do both, right? Um, and then also another kind of issue is also party alignment, right? That, you know, the Republican Party is champion at the particular moment, right? African-American rights, right? Um, but the suffrages aren't really feeling the party alignment and understanding that. And so there's multiple ways in which that alliance becomes complicated after 1865. Mm. You mentioned no black women were invited to the Seneca Falls Convention in 1848. Uh, notably absent Sojourner Truth, whose speech, Ain't I a Woman, uh, get, got a lot of attention. Uh, talk a little bit through with people who may not have uh, read that speech. What did she say exactly? Well, the speech is really complicated. The history about the speech is really complicated, right? There's all ways in which historians um, are clarifying, right, that particular speech and exactly what she said. And, and pretty much what is going on is that she's raising Sojourner Truth is, again, in the same kind of tradition of Mariah Stewart, right, is really trying to carve out this space to talk about we are black women and we are also contributing to this movement, right? And that iconic kind of speech in 1841, she's raising this question. One of the things, though, that I um, love, actually, in this tradition of ain't I a woman, right? This question about womanhood, again, it kind of goes back that the question of womanhood is always in question for black women in particular. And Sojourner Truth is, is, is constantly asking America, right, that where is the humanity for black women, right? Who is championing our humanity? Who is, who is hearing our voice and making space for us? Um, um, and so in, in 1858, uh, 
right? She actually um, gives another speech, right? And instead of just talking, she actually bares her breast in the speech, right? To kind of raise the point um, about, you know, where where is the way in which African-American women are seen, right? Um, not only as women, but as full human beings, right, that deserve, uh, you know, a, a champion, right, that deserves a movement in which we are fully included. Brittany Yancey is in studio with me, assistant professor of humanities at Goodwin College. Also with us, Karen Lye Miller, researcher with the Connecticut Historical Society. Uh, this is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up after the break, we're going to learn more about the suffragists here in our state. And you can join our conversation, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Now, Connecticut was not among the original 36 states to ratify the 19th Amendment, which granted women the right to vote. Connecticut was actually 37th. We're learning about the suffrage movement in our state at that time. That's because next year is a centennial of the woman's vote. Uh, my guests in studio, uh, Brittany Yancey, Assistant Professor of Humanities at Goodwin College. Also here, Karen Lye Miller, a researcher with the Connecticut Historical Society. Uh, Karen, we heard uh, Brittany talking about um, some of the women who've been overlooked uh, in Connecticut, uh, Miller Stewart, I believe, or Stuart Miller, one of them. But I wanted to uh, talk more about some of the early suffragists here in Connecticut um, at the time in the 1860s. Frances Burr was one of them. Can you tell us about her? Frances Ellen Burr, and some of these names will be very well known because they've been documented and we're talking about who be- who remains visible yeah. and invisible. So these are the uh, suffrage leaders who remain highly visible and their voices are recorded. We have their testimonies. So Frances Ellen Burr began, we would say, maybe the first uh, public activist for suffrage in Connecticut. She tried uh, to form suffrage associations early, but was unsuccessful. In 1867, she garnered enough petitions to present a bill before the House of Representatives in Connecticut. The bill was defeated by with a margin of 111 to 93. So the margin wasn't terribly wide. It gives us hope. <laughs> and she, Frances Ellen Burr remains a recording secretary for uh, the Connecticut Women's Suffrage Association um, for decades and decades. So we have uh, a great deal of all of her notes. So we owe a great deal of our Connecticut suffrage history uh, to her. I should mention the Connecticut Historical Society. Uh, you've been one of them uh, working on a, a really interesting exhibit uh, to mark the centennial. We're going to learn a little bit more about that uh, in just a few minutes. Uh, but there's also another suffragist, Isabella Beecher Hooker, who I believe helped uh, f- uh, create this formal suffrage organization in Connecticut. What can you tell us about her? Isabella uh, Beecher Hooker is uh, part of that very well-known Beecher family. She's a half-sister of Catherine Beecher and Harriet Beecher Stowe. So she's already among those elite prominent people who are well-educated and well-connected. She, in 1869, leads the first Connecticut Convention for Women's Suffrage. I think she earlier had uh, became outraged that married women's lost their property upon marriage. Uh, and that was one of the first uh, platforms that she argued for. Uh, you know, she wanted to protect women's uh, property rights. And later on, she had other issues that she also tackled. 
but she led the Connecticut Women's Suffrage Association for over 30 years. Mm -hmm. So it was under her stewardship that um, she navigated through a lot of the different changes in that early first wave of suffrage activism. I understand that there are these uh, sisters in Glastonbury, Julia and Abby Smith. I believe their house is now a, a national historic oh. landmark. But there is a, a really interesting story because of the idea, again, of how governments treated women, even though they weren't uh, represented or uh, weren't able to be, um, uh, be able to vote. Can you tell us what happened there? So we're talking about the Julia, the Smith sisters, Julia and Abby Smith of uh, Glastonbury. They're known as the Maids of Glastonbury, <laughs> or quite often their tale is, starts with the Maids of Glastonburys and their cows. So they were uh, they were from an, a wealthy family who were they were extremely well educated and accomplished, and most of them did not uh, marry. They pursued their uh, um, not careers, but their interests, like translating the Bible, <laughs> pursuing um, other primarily academic interests. And the town of Glastonbury decided to tax the sisters because they were unmarried. They were property owners. And they, the town taxed two other uh, widows who also obviously own property uh, and no one else. So the sisters protested this unfair select taxing and refused to pay the taxes. The, and this gained uh, widespread attention. The New Haven Women's Suffrage Association immediately reached out to them and, and um, realized that Abby Smith was an ardent uh, women's suffragist also. And, you know, their, I guess their tagline or their motto was like, you know, no taxation without representation. How is it that women had to follow and to uh, be responsible for things like taxes and um, the other, I guess, duties of citizenship without having the privileges of public voice and voting. Mm -hmm. And so what happened? How did, what kind of response uh, did their story get? And did they actually end up having, uh, did they get what they wanted? <laughs> <laughs> well, they, they lost their cows. Okay. They lost some <laughs> land because the town actually garnered them, garnished them in order to pay the back taxes. But the sisters actually took the town to court and said, this is unfair taxation without representation. So eventually they did win their case. Mm -hmm. Uh, Brittany Yancey is also in studio with me, Assistant Professor of Humanities at Goodwin College. Uh, so we are hearing about some of the uh, white uh, Connecticut suffragists uh, that were uh, part of the, the early movement. And I'm curious when we hear about these formal organizations uh, coming uh, online uh, in Connecticut, uh, do we know how they interacted with women of color here in Connecticut? So there's a very limited resource um, on that interaction. There are um, ways that we can kind of think about what that interaction looks like based on what is happening on the national level. Um, but one of the exciting uh, places where we are is uh, Karen and I and Eileen Frank, we are getting ready to embark on a project that is going to unearth the history of women of color in the suffrage movement in Connecticut. And, and I feel that we are going to be able to be able to tell that narrative um, much better than where we are now, um, because the source material is just not there. And it's not that it's not available. It's just that the way we have approached talking about the suffrage movement is very limited um, in a way that even the term suffragette, right, um, already excludes 
women of color because women of color are organizing very differently than white women in this moment. So when we talk about the early suffrages in the 20th century, right, one of the names that I want, um, that I focus on is Rachel Baker, right? Um, She is actually the mother of Constance Baker Motley, okay? And um, when you think about Justice Motley and just how extraordinary she is. Mm -hmm. And remind us, a New Haven native uh, who argued before the U.S. Supreme Court became one of the first federal judges. Absolutely, right? I mean, just an extraordinary Connecticut woman, right, who we celebrate just for her champion, right, of civil rights. Um, Her, um, you know, she's ascending to leadership, right, at such a high level, who is and who's inspired when you read her autobiography, she is inspired by her mother, um, Rachel, Rachel Baker. Baker. Um, and she talks about some of her political work that her mother is doing. One being um, in 1917, right? Her mom is working with those who are establishing, much like what is happening in Hartford, the NAACP chapter um, in New Haven. And she's working hand in hand with W.E.B. Du Bois and others who are establishing this chapter, right? Um, But she also talks about her mom and her affiliation with the Women's Auxiliary um, and the United Church Women, right, which is the statewide um, organization um, of Episcopalian women, right? Um, And her involvement in the church um, is so critical, right, to her political work, which the suffrage um, issue is central, right? That is not going to fit squarely in with how we how we how we historically have talked about suffrage um, in not only Connecticut but nationally, right? Because it 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 is in its church work. It is um, um, in these kind of mutual aid societies, right? But this is where black women, in particular, are not only talking about women's equality, um, the right to vote, they're talking about, right, racial justice, right, economic independence, all of these things um, are happening in these different circles and in these different spaces. Um, and so the project that we're getting ready to embark on, we're going to these um, different spaces to look in, you know, the church archives, to look in some of these organizational records, to be able to unveil, right, um, <laughs> these women um, who were certainly part of the movement doing suffrage work, right, and they definitely need to be part of this moment. And this project that you've referenced, again, is this exhibit uh, that the Connecticut Historical Society is going to be unveiling in 2020? We have an exhibit coming up next spring uh, discussing the Connecticut's involvement in the women's suffrage movement and the passing of the amendment. Uh, We definitely do hope to include women of color and their representation and their history as much as possible. Uh, you just heard from Karen Lye Miller, a researcher with the Connecticut Historical Society. Uh, we're talking about a, a big portion of time. So if we look at uh, the, the the actions before the Seneca Falls Convention, that again was in 1848. Uh, we're hearing about uh, suffragists that were active in 1917, just a couple years before uh, Congress uh, was to pass uh, the 19th Amendment, but they had to wait for 36 states to ratify. There was a lot happening in the world uh, during that time. Uh, the Civil War, there was the flu epidemic. Then we're talking about World World 
War One. Uh, Karen, how did this movement again ebb and flow um, when it came to what was in front of people and what they were most concerned about? The right for women to vote, uh, not a priority uh, for many? No, absolutely not. And through, I think, until about 1909, 1910, the movement had really kind of settled down and um, I don't want to say died down, but definitely slowed, particularly in Connecticut. We had other concerns. We had economic recessions. Uh, we were going over, we were expanding overseas. We had World War I from 1914 to 1918. Uh, we had the Spanish flu, which, uh, you know, killed many, many people. So there are so many other concerns. And suffragists who were out there picketing in 1917 in front of the White House asking for recognition, you know, they were called and you know, unpatriotic. How dare you at this time be so selfish and to think about yourselves um, when we have so many other pressing issues. Mm. And this uh, movement wasn't without violence. Uh, it wasn't uncommon for women who were uh, participating in parades uh, to be attacked. Can you tell us a little bit about that, uh, Karen? There are many reports of how women were, especially the ones who were picketing in front of the White House, they were arrested, they endured terrible abuses in prison, like one woman was knocked against a prison bed and, you know, had a concussion, uh, broken bones. So the brutality at the hands of, you know, official representatives of the government actually became public because these suffragists spoke about them, wrote about them. But they also suffered, uh, suffragists also endured violence at the hands of people in public spaces, like during a parades in Hartford or New Haven. Uh, people would throw things, curse at them, and um, sometimes come at them mm -hmm. physically. So there is actually, I was reading a report in uh, The Crisis, which is the magazine of the uh, NAACP, where African-American suffragists said, you know, in the parade, we were treated no worse than the white suffragists. You know, we were all equally abused. Mm -hmm. and, and that's terrifying to think that these women who are marching for their rights were being physically attacked mm -hmm. by other men, women, and children. I mentioned that not everyone was on board with this idea that women deserve the right to vote, including some women. Oh, they were yes. they were anti-suffrage yes. uh, organizations. Uh, the National Park uh, Service uh, said by the early 1900s, there was the a Connecticut Association opposed to woman suffrage. Tell us about who were the members <laughs> of this association and uh, what were some of their, uh, their feelings about it? The anti-suffragists the population demographics are quite the same as the mm -hmm. suffragists themselves. They're pri primarily, you know, upper class, uh, well-educated white women with the resources to advocate against su uh, suffrage. So in Connecticut, they were led by Grace Markham, and they also garnered, uh, you know, large numbers of people who were organizing in various um, towns like Old Saybrook and Hartford. So these were people who felt that by, gain, by pursuing political activism and public voice, women would actually lose the power to enact uh, social change. You know, their argument was that if women were already at this point, and you know, the anti-suffragists weren't um, backwards women who preferred to stay at home, et cetera. They were already out there advocating for improved uh, working conditions for women, education for children, um, clean milk, clean water, et cetera. And they argued that they would lose their privilege or their power as ladies in society if they gain this right to vote. Mm. 
Again, we're talking about the suffrage movement because next year, 2020, is the centennial of the 19th Amendment, which granted women the right to vote. Uh, this is where we live. My guests in studio, Karen Lye Miller, researcher with the Connecticut Historical Society. Also, Brittany Yancey, assistant professor of humanities at Goodwin College. I wanted to go back to you, uh, Brittany, because uh, someone uh, that um, was uh, very uh, prominent um, in the suffrage movement, who was not a white woman, uh, was Ida B. Wells, who was an African-American journalist. Can you talk about um, her efforts uh, to, uh, again, promote the the right to vote, but also uh, women's equality? And how did she run up against other well-known suffragists like Alice Paul? So Ida B. Wells, I mean, she is, you know, when you talk about fierce women, mm-hmm. she is just one that just is just so on on message. Um, born in Mississippi, um, and she ends up going to Russ College um, and then moves to Memphis, Tennessee, right? And this is where she starts her career in journalism. Um, We know her um, much for her um, just uh, dedicated career to Mm anti-lynching and her work that she is able to not only pursue this, this research that really yields reports and some of our just under our early understanding of what this looks like at the turn of the 20th century. But she also um, has um, her own journalist career um, in printing press, right? Um, and so she is um, thinking about all of these issues um, and by, I would say, the turn of the 20th century, um, she um, is living in Chicago, and she starts to organize um, and become more part of the fabric of the suffrage movement. Um, she creates the Alpha Suffrage Club um, for African American women, and and I want to kind of contextualize this because you have at the turn of the 20th century, right, a way in which African American women are thinking about how is it that we are fighting for suffrage, right? But the color line is so defined in America, right? That in the late 19th century, that white supremacy and racism is so um, so profound that even in a movement for equality, you have ways in which white women yield um, to the racial politics um across the country, right, and exclude um, African-American women from this movement. So in 1896, you have um, an organization that is created, um, the National National Association for Colored Women, um, that is focusing on the emergence of clubs, Mm -hmm. right? And so the National Club Movement for Black Women is creating clubs all across the country that are not only dedicated to suffrage, but also other concerns within their communities, right? And so up against this backdrop, you have the Alpha Suffrage Club that Ida B. Wells establishes that is the first suffrage club um, for black women in Illinois. Um, This particular club um, is working, right, um, in collaboration with white suffrage movement, right, with the white suffrage movement, right? Um, Her interaction with Alice Paul um, is sometimes dramatized, but they do have an interaction. (laughs) (laughs) Can you briefly tell us about that? And so one of the probably probably more famous, well-known stories is their interaction at the 1913 suffrage march, where Alice Paul 
you know, much like um, others, um, are encouraging black women to march at the back of the parade. And Ida B. Wells, in fact, rejects that and says, no, I'm going to march with the uh, (laughs) Illinois delegation. Um, And, you know, this was really unsettling to Paul and others about, you know, their idea is that they are going to um, kind of, you know, defer to their white Southern suffragettes, right, and understand that they are not going to participate fully in this march, in this movement, if Black women are a part of it. And so Ida B. Wells really just marches right in, right, Mm -hmm. and marches along and stands her ground. And it just, uh, it really kind of speaks to what Karen is talking about, right, that women, particularly in general, right, in these very kind of public demonstrations are really putting their bodies on the lines, right? And so when we talk about violence, right, you know, to think, I think about what Ida B. Wells must have felt like, right? And really, when you talk about resilience and and bravery, right, (laughs) that you can't get any more brave than to be in this moment, 1913, a black woman who is not only defying the kind of racial politics of the land, but even within the movement, right, where you're supposed to feel somewhat some camaraderie to just defy the leader right? Um, And just stand on your ground and march on. I just think that is just so inspiring to understand. Uh, We're almost out of time. Uh, So if we jump forward a few years, again, there were 36 states uh, that ratified the 19th Amendment. Uh, I think it was August 26th, 1920, when Congress certified uh, this ratification. Uh, But that didn't mean that uh, the fight was over, especially when it came to women of color, uh, black black women and and men who uh, faced voter suppression for many years, including poll taxes. And it wasn't until the Voting Rights Act in 1965 where we saw some remedy of that. Yeah, you know, I, I definitely I'm so glad that we have some time for this, because one of the things that <laughs> I a, want just under a minute, unfortunately. Uh, OK, OK, I'll make it really quick. One of the things that I'm very excited that I know that we're going to get into with our with, with our project is looking at the Connecticut State Union. That is a part of the National Association for Colored Women. This is where Sarah Fleming comes into play. Um, Sarah Fleming is the president in 1933 who kind of leads this on and And so I'm looking forward to kind of unveiling that and working with Eileen and Karen to be able to tell the story of the Connecticut State Union, who is part of the national NACW, who has a motto of um, um, strive to win, right, and understanding their story more. Brittany Yancey again, who is the Assistant Professor of Humanities at Goodwin College. We'll try to uh, have some more information on our website at wmpr.org slash where we live. Brittany, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Also here, Karen Lyme Miller, researcher with the Connecticut Historical Society. Again, we look forward to this exhibit um, being launched in 2020, the centennial of the 19th Amendment. Karen, thank you so much. Thank you. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up one century after suffrage, what barriers remain today for women's full participation in the political process, you can join us. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel.
We've been learning about the suffrage movement because next year is the centennial of the 19th Amendment, which granted women the right to vote. Now, suffrage was born out of efforts by women who wanted to be treated equally. And more than a century later, the campaign for equal rights continues. Uh, joining me now in studio is Kate Farrar, executive director of the Connecticut Women's Education and Legal Fund. Kate, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lucy, for having me. Before we talk about some specific work of the Connecticut Women's Education and Legal Fund, I just wanted to ask you personally, um, as a woman, as someone who has been involved in organizations uh, working to increase representation of women in the political process, what does this century milestone mean for you? I think personally, and certainly what you heard from your previous guests, is we have a lot to be proud of. And I think 2018 was certainly a remarkable year. A lot of firsts, a lot of opportunity to celebrate more women running than ever before, more women of color running than ever before. But when you step back and really look at the data, you know, even in our state of Connecticut, we still have only about a third of our representation in the legislature is women. And we only have eight women of color in our entire legislature. And so regardless of kind of all of mm-hmm. these efforts to really galvanize, we need to do even more. We need to activate even more every election. Uh, even on uh, when we think about uh, John Hannah Hayes, who was the first African-American congresswoman elected mm-hmm. from Connecticut. Uh, Denise Napier was the first first and only African-American woman elected to, uh, again, this constitutional officer uh, in our state. So it is surprising when you think about in 2019, we still got a lot of room to go. We do. And it really starts at the youngest ages. We know from research that girls' interest in running an office starts And in regards to how much they talk about politics at Mm -hmm. home, do they play sports? What is their experience in the collegiate environment? Mm -hmm. And it really comes down to how each of us are playing a role to recruit and encourage women to run in our communities. So tell us about the work that your organization does. Again, when we're thinking about equal opportunities for both women and girls in our state. Thanks for asking. Our organization, the Connecticut Women's Education and Legal Fund, we were founded uh, back in 1973. And that was at a time in our state when women couldn't get credit as a man could at a bank. There was no mention of sexual harassment, even in law. Uh, It was just the start of women talking about equal pay. And our organization really was founded to fight for those rights, for women to understand their legal rights, and to make sure that we were passing laws to get to that place of equity. And what we're really seeing today in our state is absolutely we've seen gains in education. We've seen gains in economic security. We've seen gains in health and safety. But where we're really falling behind when you look closely at the gaps in our state, there are great inequalities when it comes to wealth and poverty in our state. There are great inequalities when it comes to racial inequities. One of the things we did just this weekend is we had an incredible conference with Brittany Yancey, who was just a guest earlier with the United State of Women, really talking about what we can do in our state to move forward to change those real inequities when it comes to uh, women and women of color in our state and centering our efforts on women of color. And one of the key things when we talk about civic representation, as I shared, uh, we certainly have these great gains, but how are we making sure that women of color in our communities are encouraged to run for office? And one of the things we were successful in this previous year in passing in Connecticut is making Connecticut one of the first states uh, to have paid family medical leave. And that is a substantial 
crucial uh, difference that it'll make for women as caregivers. And we're in a place of really making sure that gets implemented. So that's the that's the challenge, though, the implementation. And so where does that stand, Kate? Great question. Uh, we are working closely with the state uh, in formulating the Paid Family Medical Leave Authority uh, that is getting up and running to make sure that uh, the program gets started and the program is set to launch in 2022 uh, to make sure that no individual in our state uh, is in a situation where they have to choose their job over caring for themselves or a family member. And we are making sure that implementation um, goes through strong and it's continuous uh, with setting this up so that everyone in the state knows that this program exists and that they can take advantage of it. Mm. Uh, Another issue when we think about uh, women's uh, equality uh, that still needs to be addressed in 2019 is the pay gap. Mm -hmm. Uh, The the wage gap for women in Connecticut overall is similar to the national average. So women in Connecticut make 84 cents to the dollar, but it's even wider if you're talking about uh, black and Hispanic women. Can you tell us about that? Absolutely. That really gets at the heart of what we see uh, specifically for Latina women, for African-American black women in our state. Those gaps are substantial due to educational gaps. So when you look at who is pursuing and completing bachelor's degrees in our states, uh, those are predominantly white women, not black women and Latina women. Um, So what can we do to change that? We have to make sure that we are offering more opportunities uh, to make sure that women can work and go to school at the same time, that there's childcare available at those educational institutions. Um, And that we're really addressing issues of student debt and how they impact women over their lifespan. But we were effective this past year in raising the minimum wage. That certainly helps um, since women predominantly are in those minimum wage jobs. Uh, And paid leave will certainly make a dent. Um, But we would absolutely encourage more efforts by companies, by individuals looking at the pay gaps in their own companies, um, because those are really true things that exist for women every day in their workplaces. Mm. And the only way to really uh, make a dent in these gaps is to have uh, accurate data who then can go to policymakers and ask for change. And so if you could just circle back uh, just briefly to this, again, this data platform Mm -hmm. that you have launched and, you know, how that'll help uh, address these inequalities with between women and girls who may live on the western side of our state versus the eastern side? Great question. Part of kind of making the case for an investment in women and girls and really these gaps that I spoke of that are really true daily stories for our women and girls is how do we use data as a part of that story? And data is power. We were able to launch a new platform just on Friday uh, called the Women and Girls Data Platform. Uh, It is at womenandgirls.ctdata.org. And it really provides a picture of where we as a state and then by county and then by our biggest cities with several of these indicators uh, for women and girls by education, economic security, health and safety issues, and civic engagement. We hope people will use it um, as a part of telling their story of where we really need to make change for women.
Just a couple minutes left. Again, I'm speaking with Kate Farrar, Executive Director of Connecticut Women's Education and Legal Fund. Um, I started the segment talking about, or the hour, talking about how the Me Too uh, movement uh, really uh, propelled uh, women uh, to run for both uh, state and uh, federal uh, offices. Uh, when we look at what's going on here in Connecticut in terms of uh, sexual harassment prevention, mm-hmm. are we happy with the progress that's been made and, and what's left to do, Kate? Great question. Uh, we recognize that individuals are coming forward in numbers we've never seen before of really sharing their story. And that is an incredible testament to this moment in time. But we know that employees have incredible fears of coming forward in the workplace. And the majority of instances, individuals just are fearful of coming forward. And one of the things that we were able to be successful in this past legislative session was expanding the sexual harassment training requirement. Uh, so it'll reach more employees in every company in our state and making sure that employees have a longer amount of time to file a complaint with the Commission on Human Rights and Opportunities in our state. But quite honestly, you know, training will only go so far. You know, one of the things that uh, I like to speak to is we had this Me Too movement, Mm -hmm. but we are in a moment where it needs to be a You Too moment, meaning that, you know, I can tell my story. I can speak to what's happened to me personally. But every single person around me, my family, my friends, my colleagues, it's really up to us as bystanders to take our role in the workplace, as employers to look at our policies and processes and really ensure that we aren't just doing a training, but how are we creating a culture in our workplaces that is going to make that change for women? We'll have to leave it there. Kate Farrar is executive director of the Connecticut Women's Education and Legal Fund. That women and girls data platform that we talked about, we'll make sure that we link that uh, at our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Uh, Kate, thanks so much for coming in. We appreciate it. Thank you, Lucy. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Special thanks to Katie Tolarski who ran our board today. You can learn more about the show. Just download Where We Live on your favorite podcast app. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As always, thanks for listening.